0: You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast. This week, we are welcoming Jenna Overbaugh to the show. Jenna is a licensed professional counselor out of Wisconsin, and she has extensive experience working with people who struggle with OCD. Today, Jenna is on the show to talk all things obsessive compulsive disorder in the postpartum period and beyond. We go through what OCD is and what it isn't, some of the myths about it. What role do intrusive or scary thoughts play in OCD? This is something that is really prominent, comes up for a lot of moms I work with, are these scary and intrusive thoughts that come out of nowhere and can be very disturbing and unsettling. What distinguishes OCD from intrusive thoughts or when it starts to go from intrusive thoughts and anxiety into a more severe OCD and therefore when you should seek help and support? We also cover how a mom can know if she's experiencing OCD and the best form of treatment for this type of disorder because OCD can be a very specific specialty in itself and therefore some extra considerations are helpful when seeking help and support. This is a much needed episode. This subject is not talked about enough and postpartum OCD is one of the most Underdiagnosed of the postpartum mental health PMADs, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. So it is so important that we talk about OCD in the postpartum period and beyond. You've heard it all before. It takes a village. And I'm sure you've wondered to yourself is this village going to show up or what? Motherhood can feel lonely. All the people you thought would be there to support you are nowhere to be found. It's a theme that comes up in therapy sessions, DMs, emails, and even our workshop reviews. Moms want to connect with other moms, but they don't know how. This got us thinking, what if we created the village? What if we created a space for moms to come together? And so we did. We listened to your feedback and we created a community specifically for moms called Mom Freely Together. Our mission for this community was to create a space for moms to grow with one another freely without judgment. It's a place where you can come and feel validated, supported, entertained, and educated. We wanted to be equal parts helpful and also fun. Are you ready to Mom Freely Together? Head to happyasamother.co slash momfreely to learn more. That's happyasamother.co slash momfreely. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we are dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. Let's work together in letting go of shame and guilt, accepting where we are in our journey, and moving towards becoming the women we want to be. We will hear from experts, learn practical tips, and listen in on honest conversations. Please note that the information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Okay? Let's dive in. Jenna, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. I've gotten to know you a bit through Instagram and this is a topic that I feel like really needs the right person to speak to. So thank you for being that person and taking the time today. Thank you.
1: And I totally agree. I think that this topic needs to be done justice because so many women don't know that they're struggling, don't even know that this is a thing. And then above and beyond that, they don't even know where to start as far as treatment goes. So I'm super excited to get into all of that with you and hopefully help out some of the moms that are out there.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with you. There's a few topics when working with clients that I do feel need an extra specialization. And what I mean by that is often therapists are kind of like general practitioners, aren't we? We deal with a variety of different things that come into our office, but I would say there are a few things based on my experience in private practice, things like whether it's addictions or eating disorders or OCD, I feel like specifically one of those things that just really need an extra niche of training in. So I'm excited to draw from your expertise today and really unpack this topic.
1: Yeah. And I absolutely agree. And I think that For some things, you know, whether it's just general transitions in life, you know, adjustment things, you know, maybe just going and seeing an unstructured kind of more supportive therapist with a more generalized approach to treatment might be helpful. I know that's what I've done in the past and it was great. It was awesome. But when you're struggling with certain things, we do recommend what we call an evidence-based treatment. And we're lucky enough as a field for certain disorders, for certain evidence-based practices to have that. Um, based mm-hmm. on research that we've done, and so yeah, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, definitely is one of those things that you can't just, you know, throw coping skills at and meditation and kind of this like unstructured, supportive type of empathic listening, like we would in other more non-judgmental, you know, kind of just laid back therapy approaches. Um, mm-hmm. It really does take a more structured approach. So.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the ways I love to open up the podcast is to understand how you came to specialize in this field. Because I feel like there's always a story here. So how did you find your way into niching down and specializing in working with obsessive compulsive disorder or like anxiety disorders, generally speaking? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, so I've always been an anxious kid, an anxious person. I remember even when i was in kindergarten you know middle school i would always get anxious before class like nervous belly didn't want to go i wanted to like bargain with my mom to not go i was always like really angry at my anxiety like almost like it was this separate entity i didn't like that it would win against me sometimes trying to like i always thought of it kind of like a and i was in competition with it mm-hmm. um and so i would always you know Okay, I don't want to go to school today. I guess I'm gonna to go to school today. Like I just from a very early age, I was always very good at challenging myself and knowing that okay, even if I'm anxious, I have to do this thing anyway because I know I'll be less anxious once I do it. Right. And from a very very early age, I knew that, and so when I went to college and I started, I think just in my general psych 101 class. I learned that this was actually a modality of treatment. It's called exposure and response prevention. And essentially, you know, we'll get into it more, I'm sure, but essentially what that is, is where we expose people to their fears, whether that's with anxiety, whether that's with obsessive compulsive disorder, trauma, phobias, social anxiety. And you get them to resist their safety-seeking behaviors or their safety behaviors that they would normally do afterwards. So Mm -hmm. the concept of being able to get over something by going through it. So yeah, from a very early age in, in college, that's pretty much what I gravitated towards first thing. Always wanted to do exposure and response prevention and specialize in OCD just because it is the gold standard treatment for people who have OCD and anxiety. So, what that means is it's just the best. It's backed by tons and tons of research for that population. And then, when I had my now three year old back in 2018, I actually struggled with it myself. I Mm -hmm. was naive going into motherhood thinking like, I know everything there is to know about OCD. I've spoken at national conferences about it. I'm in books about it. I've been at some of the most like world-renowned places to treat it. I'm for sure going to be fine when I have oh, a kid. Um, and that it just rocked my world. And it it was terrible. It was awful. Um, yeah. so I think my lived experience with it, like after having gone to my own exposure and response prevention therapist and like having seen that other side of it. Definitely has made me a better mom and a better therapist, 100%.
0: Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more with that. And I openly share on the podcast about how this entire happy as a mother platform is birthed out of my own really clunky and messy, you know, transition into motherhood and experience with postpartum anxiety and depression myself, which as a therapist for you know, 10 or so years in the field, not even knowing that maternal mental health was a niche or a specialty at the time, really helped me to one, be a better therapist and two, like really lit a fire under me that if I, after seven years of schooling, did not even know this was a thing, how is the everyday mother supposed to know, right? So I relate with that story and I love to hear about how people really got into their niches because there is something that comes from that lived experience and that passion that really, you don't have to experience something to have authority in it. But when you've gone through it, you really have a different level of understanding, you know?
1: Absolutely. And I I feel like I get it so much more now. I remember there was a point where I was really struggling. One of the things that I struggled with was I was terrified that I was going to accidentally leave my son or on purpose, leave my son in the grocery store or somewhere in public. And it got so bad. My checking and my OCD behaviors got so bad that I would have to pull over on the side of the road to physically like hold him and make sure that he was like he was there.
0: Yeah. It wasn't
1: enough to just see him or hear him or like touch him. I had to like engage all of my senses because to ground yourself and know.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Like I had to be 100% sure. And I remember having that moment of like, I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm having this intrusive thought. I'm having this obsession. It's creating anxiety in me. And I feel the need to do this compulsion. And I know I shouldn't do that. I know as a therapist, I shouldn't do that. This is what I teach people every day not to do. And I'm pulling over and I'm doing it anyway.
0: Oh, right. Like, i never right. had that
1: experience before. So it definitely made me more compassionate because I can see now when the stakes are so high, like logic goes out the window.
0: Right. And there's nothing more, that, like there's no stakes that are more high than keeping your human alive. Right. Sure. And yeah, I can totally relate with that. So I do want to throw a little trigger warning in here and I'll probably do it in the intro to the episode as well, because we are going to be unpacking some intrusive thoughts and things I imagine today and drawing on some examples and some experiences. So I do want to put that out there, you know, that we might be talking about different types of intrusive thoughts and that they could be triggering for anxiety, but all with the purpose of really unpacking and removing shame from, you know, these conversations. Mm-hmm. Okay. So why don't we start off with a definition of what OCD is and what it is not. And for some reason, Khloe Kardashian comes to my mind (laughs) for this conversation Mm -hmm. because I see... The community on Instagram, you know, who has been diagnosed with OCD, getting very frustrated with the use of celebrities, you know, uh, language around OCD. And so what it is and what it isn't. How about we start there?
1: Right. And I think that, you know, those little moments of frustration are totally valid because I don't know if you know this, but it takes on average 10 to 17 years between when someone starts to exhibit signs and symptoms consistent with OCD to when they actually get an exposure and response prevention trained therapist. And I think one of those reasons is because the media and what we talk about in society, when it relates to OCD is it's all contamination, or I like things to be clean. I like things to be perfect. I'm nitpicky. And that is That can happen. But I'd say more often than not, it's something else completely. I'd say that that's maybe 10 or 15 or 20% of the individuals that I work with. For the most part, it's something else which is what we're talking about here, which are these sometimes more taboo or triggering intrusive thoughts. They could be related to harm intrusive thoughts, sexual intrusive thoughts. But what OCD is, so what obsessive compulsive disorder is, is it's really a two-part problem. So we have the obsessions, which are, you know, they could take the form of intrusive thoughts, ideas, images, impulses, or feelings. So any of those things and they're experienced as intrusive because they kind of come out of nowhere. You could be literally just enjoying your time with your baby, you know, driving around, whatever. And then you just have this thought, like, what if I just pulled over my car and I just drove off of this bridge? Mm -hmm. Or you could be minding your own business, like Paw Patrol in the background, and you're cutting up, you know, dinner with a knife, and you have this intrusive thought. Again, it comes in out of nowhere. What if I just stabbed my baby? And Mm -hmm. it can be really, really intrusive. Again, like that's the best word to describe it because it's just out of nowhere. It seems like someone kind of implanted it in you. And a lot of times these thoughts are ego dystonic, which means they're inconsistent with what that person values. And that's why they're so troubling, right? Like, why would I have that thought about my baby? Like, Mm -hmm. what does that mean about me that I had that thought? And so that's the first problem is really this intrusive thought process. And there are so many different types of intrusive thoughts that you can have. Those are really, truly just some examples. But then the second problem is this urge to need to do this compulsion. And a compulsion is just either a behavioral, so like an outward expression of some need for you to decrease or negate the anxiety that you felt from that intrusive thought could also be something that you do in your mind. So there are mental compulsions that you could do. Oh, I would never do that with my baby. Or, you know, if you have a bad thought about a baby, maybe you try to replace it with a good thought about your baby. So really a compulsion is anything that you do behaviorally, outwardly Mm -hmm. or can be in your mind as well that you do to negate or kind of neutralize the anxiety that you had from that obsession Mm
0: -hmm. or Um, you try to maybe pray or you try Mm -hmm. to something along those lines to like morally or like repent or like things like that as well right
1: absolutely there are so Mm -hmm. many different things and so yeah Yeah. I mean OCD can come out in
0: so many different forms and
1: really we've done a lot of research as a field lately to say that like the, the OCD subtype You know, we have contamination and and scrupulosity, which is more about religion. And um, there's harm intrusive thoughts, sexual intrusive thoughts. There's a lot of research to suggest that those subtypes don't actually mean that much. Um, Obviously, Mm. they provide some solidarity within that community of people who struggle with similar things. But it's actually all about uncertainty. And what is more (laughs) uncertain than being a mom? (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. OCD, like outside of motherhood in general, is all about uncertainty. We call it the doubt disorder. And so OCD will latch on to any person who hates uncertainty needs to be 100% sure. And it comes up with this kind of superficial manifestation of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why so many women struggle, especially postpartum, is because OCD latches on to anything that's uncertain, anything that you value, and anything that you feel responsible for. And that is motherhood in a nutshell.
0: Right. Right. And I know based on the research that with all of the lack of sleep and the hormone shifts and all the things, we know that we're at prime risk for onset of a mental health challenge, you know, in the postpartum period and the experience of intrusive thoughts. I believe the statistic is like 95 or 99% of people will experience, you know, intrusive thoughts at some point throughout their lifespan. So, can we unpack? how somebody might know, because what I've heard is that postpartum OCD is one of the most underdiagnosed postpartum disorders, maybe along with like bipolar, but very underdiagnosed and not easily recognized. And so how can we distinguish some of these things? Because when I think about examples of clients that I work with, intrusive thoughts might look like some of the things you said, like, oh my goodness, what would happen if I lost control of the steering wheel or I just swerved, or if I let go of the stroller and it went off the boardwalk into the water, or if I dropped baby down the stairs, like these are things that come up frequently. And then for me as a practitioner, when I'm sort of trying to get an understanding of how rigid or sticky, these thoughts become, I try to understand, are we altering our behavior around these thoughts? So for example, are we going down the stairs on our bum Mm -hmm. in order to avoid dropping baby? Are we not carrying baby down the stairs at all? Like these kinds of things, but how, how can we distinguish or is, sorry, I know I'm stacking questions here, or is intrusive thoughts like a part on the low spectrum of an OCD thing. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, so many good points and so many good questions. So if I miss one, make me come back to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but f- I love what you said first, which was that the majority of people experience intrusive thoughts. And yes, so the research shows that I think 95 to 99% of individuals all throughout the world, moms, dads, yes, children, whoever, everyone, everyone in the, in the world experiences intrusive thoughts. And I think that 5 to 1% who said that they don't, either don't understand the question or they're lying.
0: Yeah. Um, it's they're, like part of the human experience, right? Like yeah. our brain has these thoughts sometimes.
1: Our brains are incredible. Our brains are constantly thinking of things that don't exist, right? Like we come up with the iPhone 12. We come up with planes before they existed. Our brains are capable of really incredible things. But they're also, like, our brains are the same things that come up with really awful scenarios, too. And our brains, anxiety is a good thing. If we didn't have anxiety, if we didn't have the tendency to come up with these wild scenarios, then we would all be dead. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, our brains are have one function, which is to keep us safe until we have children, and then its function is to keep them safe. Mm -hmm. And so we have to recognize like the evolutionary kind of kick here, which is our brains are like basically firing these things at us to ensure that we know what we're doing and that we can, that the, that this isn't threatening. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is to say everyone experiences intrusive thoughts. So this is not just like a mom thing, but definitely, definitely more likely to happen in motherhood because of the lack of sleep, the stress, the transition, the hormones, everything like that. And just right. because of motherhood. I think the next question that you asked was, like how to distinguish kind of between just this anxiety and when does it become a problem? Yes, I absolutely think that one indicator as to when you're no longer in the driver's seat with your anxiety is, you know, are you responding to that in some type of behavioral way? So Mm -hmm. when you have an intrusive thought and continue to move on with your day without having to do anything about it, can you just not respond to it at all? Can you respond to it non-judgmentally like any other thought and not take responsibility for it? Or are you stopping in your tracks, judging that thought? Like, oh my gosh, that was horrible. Oh my gosh. Do you, do you take responsibility for that thought? What does I that I hear that. About
0: me? Yes. I am like, am I going crazy? Am I evil? Is there something like I'm a monster? Is this like, has motherhood changed me? There's so many things like that that I've heard from people, right? And then I think that that gets to why we don't talk about it
1: more and why it's such an underdiagnosed issue because- Think about all the thoughts that we're talking about right now. Who's going to go to a doctor and say that?
0: Like, who's well, And then there's to a fear doctor? like they're going to take my baby from me. Like mm-hmm. there's this big fear of like, well, if I tell people they're going to think I'm crazy and then they're going to not want me to be a mom. Like there's yeah. such a cycle of shame and fear.
1: A hundred percent. And honestly, they're not wrong. Like our mental health system when it comes to moms, like... If you were to just go to like your random, like a random doctor or your OBGYN, I would love to say that you'd be welcome with open arms and they would be knowledgeable about intrusive thoughts. But research shows that the vast majority, I think it's 80 plus of just like general practitioners and OBGYNs, they were presented with case studies that were very clearly obsessive compulsive disorder about like sexual intrusive thoughts or harm intrusive thoughts and they were, their recommendation was to call Child Protective
0: Services. Um, um, and that's, that's that hurts I, my I, heart for moms. That really hurts my heart for moms. Because, like, we're not getting the help that we need because we're scared to talk about it. And then when we talk about it, people are not equipped. And this is actually something that I open up my informed consent with when I work with moms in therapy is, like, I am trained to know the difference between a scary and intrusive thought and an intent to act on a thought. And like all thoughts are welcome here. And, you know, we can talk about these hard and scary things and it just, I don't know, it's like an achy heart moment. The fact Mm -hmm. that we don't always have that, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's
1: awful. And I, I mean, that's part of why I love working with moms so much. And that's become since having my own experience as a mom, why I've decided to kind of specialize in that area, because I feel so strongly, like if I was struggling that much, similar to you, like if I was struggling that much, what are these women? How are they even alive? Like, how are they making it? I don't understand. You have all of your knowledge.
0: You have all your training. You have all your knowledge to pull from. You have all the coping skills in the moment that you know you need to and should do. And yet, you still are struggling so much, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. that's the piece that floored me. I'm like, I know all the therapy skills, mm-hmm. and yet I can't get myself to go have a shower. Like, there's something not okay here. Like, this is, you know, yeah. So. And that's when, when if someone
1: out there is starting to be like, yes, yeah, so that that that's me. That's another good sign, right? Like when you that you are, you know, maybe going into the zone of where this is really impairing your life, where this is becoming too distressing for you, where this is becoming maybe more of something that you want to get help for, because it's like, I know all these things and I still can't help it. Like, I don't want to do these things anymore, but I still can't help it. When you get to the point where you're like, I know, but I can't, that's when yeah. we need to have you look hopefully at a good and well-trained medical professional or mental health professional who is knowledgeable about OCD and can help.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So OCD is these thoughts or feelings or visions or things like that, right, that are often intrusive, and then often they are coupled with, like, a behavior of sorts, like mm-hmm. an avoidance or a checking or something along those lines. Are yeah. they always I believe really strongly. So, there is a lot of
1: discussion out there about pure O, like this concept of pure O. Can someone Mm -hmm. have pure O or they just have obsessions? My take on this is, and this is because I've worked with people for 10 or 12 years who have OCD and anxiety, I can always find some type of compulsion, even if it's as simple as avoidance. So, even like I would say, avoidance is a compulsion, it's a behavioral response that you're doing in response to anxiety. And so even if it's like, you know, I don't do any compulsions. I just don't go down the stairs. That's avoidance, right? Because if you're avoiding going down the stairs because you're having thoughts that you might drop the baby or throw the baby down the stairs, that's still in conjunction with that thought. And that Mm -hmm. avoidance is reinforcing. It's negatively reinforcing to that intrusive thought. So I mean, and we all avoid, right? Like there are things that I avoid on a day-to-day basis. I've avoided like 20 times before this podcast, (laughs) like, Like we all avoid. And so I do believe that you can have intrusive thoughts and not have like those very observable outward expressions like the checking, researching online or asking your partner for reassurance excessively or washing or having to clean everything. I do think though then that there are probably some subtle things that are going on, even if it's just very subtle avoidance and even if it's just a subtle like rumination in your mind. So rumination is... Like what you mentioned earlier, trying to figure out, am I crazy? Am I actually crazy? Do other people do this? Rumination is basically you trying to figure something out, um, except it's not actually problem solving. It's just like a an, a revolving door of cyclical thought. So that's mm-hmm. rumination. And, and again, we all engage in that too. So mm-hmm. I do believe that you can experience obsessions with subtle compulsions like avoidance or rumination, but there's usually something that's
0: driving the ship. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. It reminds me of an interview that I did with Kate. I can't remember the number of the episode, but I'll link it in the, in the show notes where we talked about the difference between postpartum anxiety and worry and how avoidance actually has a place in a healthy way sometimes. And like, I think about avoidance, like, Last week, I wanted to get more sleep. So I avoided watching as much reality TV and drinking White Claw in the evening because I prioritized my mental health and going to bed early. Right. So sometimes avoidance can be healthy and like intentional and conscious. And other times, like what you're describing, it is a means of coping that like we feel like we have to do. Like it's just, it feels different, feels urgent, feels. I don't know if consuming is the word, but you know, just it has like an urgency to it or something. Yeah.
1: And I, I, that's often how I will ask people, you know, who I work with, they might have a hard time distinguishing, like, is this something that I should be doing? Is this not something that I should be doing? And I will ask them, like, do you feel like you have to, like, if you don't, do you feel like something bad will happen? Or do you kind of just want to, right? Like it depends. Yeah. It yeah. depends. Um, I think there's a difference between like, i'm just gonna stay upstairs like i don't really want to go downstairs right now versus like if i go downstairs right now something bad will happen right it's it's different so and it's different depending on the situation so just have to ask yourself like what's guiding my decisions here like my values or my fear and as much as possible in treatment we want to have you you know moms especially we want you we want your behaviors to be consistent with your values more than your fears
0: is the underlying motivator often that something bad will happen and I'm trying to prevent or avoid something bad from happening? Is that sort of the underlying or maybe that's too broad or general?
1: I think there can be a, a lot of times different justifications for rituals. So sometimes it's as simple as it makes me feel better. Okay. Um, sometimes it's it prevents something bad from happening. Other times, it makes me feel like I'm preventing a problem in the future, even though maybe you're actually creating more problems in the future. Sometimes it makes them feel like they're preventing some like catastrophic event. There can be a lot of protective reasonings and justifications for people. Sometimes it's just because I don't want to be anxious. Like, I'm going to go temporary check my baby is- one more time because I don't mm-hmm. want to be anxious about it anymore. And in the moment, that leads us to feel that temporary relief. Like, <sighs> Good thing I checked on her because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to sleep. But you've just negatively reinforced that intrusive thought, right? Because your brain basically hears you say, well, that must have been threatening, not knowing 100% if she was breathing or not must have been threatening, you must not have been able to tolerate that. And consciously or not, by engaging in those compulsions, what ends up happening is Consciously or not, our brain says, good thing you checked on her because otherwise she would have stopped breathing. And so Mm. that's why it feels so urgent next time. Oh my gosh, I have to go and check on her just one more time.
0: Something that you are saying is like really hitting me differently the way that I'm hearing is like not knowing 100%. I was just having a conversation in therapy about how we know nothing 100%. And so if that's the space that OCD lives in, what a tricky world, because we go off of, you know, what's the least risk or risk versus reward. We have these different ways of weighing and making decisions. And if it's 100% certainty that we're looking for, That's a slippery slope because we're not going to find it, right?
1: Yeah, 100%. And that's really the basis of treatment, which is this uncertainty exists no matter what. So no matter what, no matter how many times you check your baby, they could still stop breathing in the middle of the night, right? So we cannot be 100% sure about that. No matter how careful you are going down the stairs, you could still do something to harm your baby. Yeah. I mean, there was a time where, especially with this lack of sleep, I remember I woke up one night and I used to have a thought, like, could I have been so tired that I hurt my baby that, and I don't remember. Mm. Um, and so I would get into these really elaborate rituals that took hours in the middle of the night. Like I would wake my son up and check his head to make sure that I didn't like bash his head through the wall. Like no, no evidence of threat. Like obviously he's sleeping. I have no recollection of doing this to him, but it was that I need to be 100. I had that thought. What if you were so tired that you could have like bashed his head against the wall? And I, I it wasn't enough to be 99.9% sure. OCD wants you to be 100% sure. Mm-hmm. And we've actually done, and that's with everything, right? Like checking locks, checking stoves. Checking your baby's breathing, the temperature in the baby's room is hard for people. Sometimes you need to be 100% sure. And no matter how many times I checked his head physically, like myself, I still would have to wake my husband up out of a dead sleep and have him check.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, It just just like added reassurance in case you're missing something or like, yeah. 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 And they've
1: actually done research to show, I think this will be relevant for so many moms out there because I think checking is a big one. Yeah. Um, as you continue to check, so as you conti- as you check your baby, for instance, five times or 10 times or 50 times, you would think that the confidence in your memory goes up because I've checked him 15 times. I better, I should be more confident in my memory having checked him 15 times than not at all. But they've actually done research to show that as someone checks something more often, the confidence in their memory actually goes down. Mm. Because, and, and I think that makes sense, right? Like, mm-hmm. as I continued to check my baby in the car to make sure that he was there, my confidence in that memory went down, which is why I continued to have to pile on new rituals um that's it's why we almost to because like we to
0: it's like you're not trusting yourself, you're yeah. doubting yourself, you're doubting your sight, you're doubting your you know whether it's hearing or whatever like we're not relying on our senses. There's like a lack of trust in our Mm -hmm. senses, right? Yeah.
1: It's like, you're basically, you're telling your brain, this was obviously worth checking, even though I've checked it 15 times. So why would your brain trust you? Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, right. Like we have to, we have to take a step back from those cycles that we're in, often in autopilot and be like, well, I've checked it 15 times. The message that my brain is getting is, I'm obviously not very reliable because I'm checking it 15 times.
0: Mm, mm -hmm. So I want to get into how we treat this, but I, I want to sort of identify, okay, how do moms know if this has become a problem for them then? Because I do think that, like, I have met people on an entire broad scale, as I'm sure have you, of what this can look like, right? where maybe we have like a checking thing that is part of the bedtime routine. And then just once that one routine is done and it's not interfering and not disrupting, it doesn't take hours and then we can move on, which doesn't disrupt life a whole lot and is doable. Or we have like waking up in the middle of the night, disrupting sleep, can't transition out of the house because it takes like an hour, you know, difference in spectrum. So when would one know, when to seek help, do you think?
1: So I think you're already bringing up so many excellent points and suggestions and kind of mile markers as far as if someone needs to get that type of treatment. One thing that you mentioned is, is it selective to just like these one or two scenarios and can you kind of be okay with that and move on? Um, I think we all need to kind of identify like is this something that's disruptive? Is this something that you know I'm okay with? Like. It's not really bothersome to me. Like, we can kind of move about our day and are, you know, still engage in a values driven life, regardless of these little tendencies. And yeah, I guess that's a good word to use too. Like, are they tendencies or is this how you're living your life? I think you'll feel that pull. Like, when you start to feel like you're not in the driver's seat anymore, when you start to feel like this sense of urgency, like, this isn't how I want things to be, like, this is getting to be too much. So, when you start to feel that impairment with your family, One area here that I see as like a big red flag is when you start to avoid certain things or when you start to involve other people in the family in your behaviors, right? Like Mm -hmm. I did with my husband, having him like wake up in the middle of the night and check for me. It's one thing to kind of be, you know, struggling on your own. It shows like a different level of dysfunction when we're bringing in other members of our family to kind of participate in that with us, because that can lead to just a lot of general family dysfunction and stress. And when I think just bringing involving other people in in the rituals or the compulsions is just really indicative that like this is this has the potential to really snowball and take on a new life form. So, yeah, just evaluating like the extent to which it's impairing your life, your sleep, your ability to kind of engage in what you would rather be doing and especially the involvement of other family members, because I think that's a really, really big mile marker for me.
0: And I think that with clients that I work with, if they can prioritize getting some sleep and do what we call nests, right? So like focus on nutrition, make sure we've eaten something, make sure that we've got some movement in, prioritized and made a plan for sleep, had some time for self and recruited some support. If we lean into those things, prioritize sleep, you know, get out for a walk, feed ourselves, and some of these things kind of like settle back down, then that's great. And I've had Mm -hmm. that with moms where it's like, you know, they feel urgency to go and like count socks or like different, like counting um, intrusive thoughts and things. And then with some rest or with a better sleep or with prioritizing those nests really feel a major difference the next day or two. And I think that when we are doing let's call them for lack of better word, like these self-care things or doing things that should be moving the needle on our mood or our anxiety. And they're not then, you know, again, to me, that's another red flag that we may be dealing with a more like moderate to severe anxiety related disorder that might need, you know, an extra set of eyes, therapist, doctor, things like that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, something that you mentioned earlier was like, can you move on? Right? Like, Sure. If you want to check your baby a few times, but then you have like movie night with your partner, like, can you kind of like compartmentalize that and then move on? Or are you like not able to enjoy yourself or your partner or your time away because like every 30 seconds you're wanting to go and check? Yeah. And is, uh, yeah. I mean, like, can you move on? Can you have these intrusive thoughts? Can you do some of these behaviors and then move on? Um, We're having a hard time moving on and kind of compartmentalizing and we're not able to move on to like the next thing in our life, whether that's a job or you know, hanging out with our partner or, you know, whatever it was that you would otherwise be doing, then I think, yeah,
0: then mm-hmm. we and have some issues. It makes me think about my husband. He's going to chuckle when he listens back to this episode without fail. Every time we get on the highway to go somewhere other than our house, like a road trip or something, did I lock the doors? Did I secure the house? Like you don't use it anymore. Don't answer anymore. (laughs) Like, you are not turning this car around to go check the doors, you know? And but the thing is, like, he can like try and retrace his trust in his mind, and he like goes through it and then can let it go. But if we got somewhere and like all he thought about, it it reminds me of like torment, right? Like if you have this undercurrent of this torment that is like nagging and consistently pulling your attention and focus back to it. Sometimes it can be tormenting you and not necessarily disrupting your life, especially because right now we're home in COVID and we're not really going anywhere and transitioning out of the house. But you are the only one who knows the level of torment internally you're experiencing, right? And that undercurrent of that, like, tormenting, nagging thing shouldn't and doesn't have to be there all the time, Mm -hmm. right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think, like I said, intrusive thoughts are always going to be there. We all experience them. Anxiety is always going to be there, too. Um, And so it's kind of part of the ride. But we want to make sure that you're in the driver's seat, that you're able to be like, okay, enough is enough. I'm moving on. Like,
0: exactly. I'm not doing that anymore. Yeah. So in terms of some of the best practices or forms of treatment or even things that people can be starting to do, although it sounds like a therapist may be helpful, for their journey?
1: Yeah. So like I mentioned, the gold standard treatment for obsessive compulsive disorder or really any anxiety disorder really is going to always come back to exposure and response prevention, otherwise known as ERP. So again, what that means Essentially it's going to be different for everybody, depending on your intrusive thoughts and your content and your kind of anxiety related behaviors. But what that looks like is basically exposing you and you can do it on your own, obviously it's better with a therapist and there are tons of resources out there that we'll share. But yeah, there are some self-guided places out there too, where you can, if you don't have access to a therapist, you can learn more. ERP is really skill-based. And so what you're going to do is basically expose yourself to these anxiety-provoking situations. And ideally you'll do it in a way that's slow and challenging, but still manageable. Mm -hmm. And so we create what's called a fear hierarchy or kind of like a fear ladder So where I work, we do like a zero to 10 scale. So we'll work with you to identify exposures or challenging and anxiety provoking situations that are like a three or four, you know, challenging. You don't like it, but I could handle it. But the ticket is you have to resist the rituals or the safety behaviors that you would normally do. Otherwise, to kind of make yourself feel better, right? So how difficult would it be for you to put your baby down and only check her on the monitor one time? You don't go back into the room and check her physically. You don't turn that sucker on and, and look again. You don't ask your husband, you know, all these things. So yeah, we would do exposures like that. And as you, what happens is really a couple of things. One is the habituation model. So you basically just get used to it. So it's basically like, you know, if you watch a scary movie one time, it's going to be anxiety-provoking and scary and jolt you. If you watch the same movie 1,500 times, it's not going to be as anxiety-provoking anymore because you're used to it. You've just gotten used to it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of like I'm sure all moms out there can relate. If you ever got like a brand-new candle, it smells really good for a couple days, and then you're kind of like, that's the worst candle ever. It doesn't smell good anymore. Mm
0: -hmm. You've habituated.
1: So long story short, your body doesn't like – new things your body is like tuning into new things as threatening or like new i gotta check that out like what's that about and so if we do these things repeatedly meaning exposures put our baby down check once walk away put the baby down check once walk away we do that repeatedly then we kind of just get used to it because it's old news our brain just interprets it as old news and not necessary or you know not requiring our threat expectations the second thing that happens is that you learn So you, by doing these exposures and, you know, getting rid of your compulsions, you violate what we call our threat expectation. So I have this expectation that if I only check my daughter one time before I walk out of the room, I have this threat expectation that she's going to stop breathing. Well, if we resist that as anxiety provoking as that would be, and we sit with our anxiety and we let that come down and we don't go back in the room or ask our husband for reassurance or whatever, we get used to that. And we learn that. She wakes up the next day and oh my gosh, like I didn't have to check on her in order to make sure that she slept through the night. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, there's always that, well, what if? (laughs) Like even my own voice is like, well, what if? But that's what you were saying earlier, Erica, which is that we could check her numerous times. We could check her every 30 seconds and something horrible could still happen. Mm -hmm. It's just that OCD fakes us into thinking that as long as we do these things, we're somehow safe.
0: We're going to control the outcome, right? right? We're going to control the outcome in some way if we just check and stay on top of it. And, you know, yeah. I like, sorry, what was the term? Was it threat? Threat
1: expectation.
0: So this expectation expectation that something
1: horrible is going to happen. And if we do the exposure, we basically replace that with, with new learning.
0: I often will have moms ask, even related to general anxiety, but what if I miss something? Is that the same as that what if question? Mm-hmm. Is that like, that's still looking for certainty? Because it's like, what if I do, we always do like our realistic thinking and, you know, our grounding stuff and weighing our evidence, looking at our facts, like all this kind of like CBT modeled stuff. And it's like, but what if I convince myself to let my guard down and then something really does happen? Yeah. Well, and
1: so then I would, I would say, yes. And I get this question literally all the time. We right. call it so; it's so common in OCD that we call it the backdoor spike. Okay. People, yeah. So OCD has a lot of weird ways of like sabotaging treatment. OCD wants you to do anything to get out of feeling better because it's an advantageous jerk, basically. Um, right. So basically, anytime that you uh, start to feel better, you might be like, "Is this okay?" Like. I hear so many people who have to do like exposures where they cook with sharp knives and their baby's in the same room. And they always get so anxious. Like, is it bad that I don't have anxiety holding a knife in the same room with my baby? And it's like anxiety. OCD is just awful like that. I know you you can, you're allowed to cook in the same room with your baby without having anxiety about it. Like the absence of anxiety doesn't mean that you're not conscious or like conscientious, it just means that you're not taking responsibility for those thoughts. It just means that you're cooking
0: in the same room with your baby. Right. Like it doesn't mean you're being irresponsible. Right. And like, this is the thing, like I I do, I see this happen sometimes where all of a sudden our coping skills are actually working and we're like, I should have anxiety about this. Right. And then it leads into this whole like, what if I miss something, or all these like, what if thoughts. And I like to use like different, like you said, you know, like call OCD a jerk or sort of these like characterizations or characters of our anxiety, generally speaking. Like, I will often tell clients that our anxiety is the worst weatherman that's ever predicted anything because they yes. always have us boarding up for like hurricanes and tornadoes and like a light drizzle kind of comes through because it's taking everything to such an extreme. And I think that that's the case. It's like, oh, what if I let my guard down and I really, you know, tell myself everything is going to be okay. And then it's not. It doesn't mean you're not going to pay attention. It doesn't mean you're not going to be attuned to your child. It doesn't mean that you're not going to still be on guard for the things you need to be on guard for. It's that you're not going to overactively be like dialed up to overdrive, you're going to just kind of take the information as it's coming instead of trying to like anticipate all of the threats. Mm -hmm. It's just going to like dial it down a little bit. And that, like you said, I love that there's like an actual, you know, the spike, there's a term for it. It's going to feel really uncomfortable and unnatural for somebody who is used to being in overdrive
1: yeah absolutely and i think that's totally common for moms i think it's actually even uh, like the word normal (laughs) like i think it's normal right like if we are conscientious chances are our babies will have a higher chance of surviving but i think we also need to take that greater step back and be like is this helpful for my family i think something else this is more from like acceptance and commitment therapy but act acceptance and commitment therapy techniques are also super complementary to exposure and response prevention I think people often, especially moms will get stuck in trying to justify their behaviors like, well, what if I miss something or I told you like something bad did happen instead of trying to evaluate whether a thought makes sense or not, or like, you know, worrying about this makes sense like this and this and this could happen. Ask yourself if it's helpful, Mm -hmm. like instead of getting caught in like, does this make sense? Should I be worrying about this? Should I not ask yourself? Like, is that helpful? If you can really, truly ask yourself, like, is your way of living and dealing with that problem? Is that functional for you? Is that helpful? If the answer is, yeah, then we don't have a problem. Like it's working fine for you. Then that's great. That's Mm -hmm. that's our previous discussion. Continue to do whatever works for you and your family, whatever works for you and your family and makes you happy. But if you can truly tell yourself like, no, that's not helpful, then we have our answer, right? Mm -hmm. We have to make change because it's not helpful.
0: Well, and you're saying like the first step sort of evaluate the thought and that in itself is something that I find we don't do, right? We just, we have a thought and we take it as being truth and we roll with it. And so even just the critical skill of awareness and evaluating that thought and if that is our anxiety predicting a storm or if that is really a projection of the future based on realistic evidence, and we've put some critical thinking to it. When yeah. you describe the treatment, did you say it's EPT? Exposure and response prevention, so e- ERP. ERP. Is it distinct from CBT training? Because it sounds similar. Good Question. So cognitive behavioral therapy
1: or CBT is kind of like the grandpa or like the grandma and exposure and response prevention is under that umbrella. So exposure and response prevention is under the umbrella of CBT. So it is a cognitive behavioral based approach. It's just way more specific and way more, you know, specified to the OCD population. So with ERP, we're working on, we actually call it, we like whisper like C. B-T, because with ERP, it's very behavioral, right? So we are constant. like, we do a little bit of the thought work. We might challenge that irrational thinking a little bit, but you can't logic your way out of OCD.
0: Yeah. Like,
1: people out there have probably tried that numerous times to no avail. And that's because if it was that simple, it would be that simple, but it's just not. The way that OCD works with the brain, we just have to do more behavioral work. And so that's where the exposure and the response prevention comes in. So... I always tell people, unfortunately, you're not going to feel better about the uncertainty about your baby making it through the night until you start to challenge the behaviors associated with that. So reducing the checking, postponing the checking, resisting the checking completely if you can, Mm -hmm. the behavior change has to come first, at Mm -hmm. least with exposure and response prevention for OCD for sure.
0: Yeah. Okay. So interesting. So one of the other things that's come up for feedback from different people in Instagram community and things is that not every therapist might be, you know, suitable for OCD treatment. So are they specifically looking for somebody who is trained in this type of therapy? How do they go about finding the appropriate therapist or professional?
1: Yeah. So I'm so glad that you asked because it is something that I feel so passionately about. And I think that's partially also why people have to wait 10 to 17 years to get that correct treatment. Because I think therapists they have the best intentions but general talk therapy that kind of unstructured therapy is not just not helpful for ocd it can actually be detrimental so -hmm. you can imagine if a mom was just really fearful of the baby like not breathing through the night and having to check them or even the issues that i had right so going and talking that out with a therapist with no behavioral change is going to make me feel better in the moment If anything, it's probably going to make me feel maybe even more justified in my behaviors. Like, yeah, I'm being a good mom. Like I'm, you know, I'm handling this well. Like I'm adjusting, this is normal, it's okay. But tonight the same thing is going to happen because I've not learned any interventions to behaviorally change that. Mm -hmm. And nothing changes, if nothing changes. And like I said, those types of therapy approaches might be super beneficial for other people. But when it comes to obsessive compulsive disorder in particular, talk therapy is not just not helpful, like it doesn't just keep you stagnant, it can actually be detrimental. It can actually provide that reassurance in that moment, make you feel better, but you're not actually dedicating yourself or committing to any kind of behavioral change in the form of ERP. So yes, I would 100% if someone out there has or feels like they have kind of that primary diagnosis of obsessive compulsive disorder, they want to know more information about it, I would 100% encourage and moms too, you know, moms, if you can find someone who's knowledgeable about postpartum issues and OCD treatment, that would be the best case scenario possible. But yeah, definitely wanting to find someone who's trained and knowledgeable about exposure and response prevention. The main website that I encourage people to go to is the International OCD Foundation. So that's iocdf.org. And then I'm over at NOCD, um, N O C D. And that is a mobile therapy platform where we, all of our therapists, were available in all 50 states, plus Australia, plus the United Kingdom. Plus, we're opening up some other international places right now as we speak. And all of our therapists are trained and we only do exposure and response prevention. So we take insurance, we do self-pay, we try to make it as accessible as possible. And honestly, it's just a really great opportunity. I work with tons of moms. We have tons and tons of moms Mm -hmm. um, and they struggle because, you know, they've been denied or their doctor called child protective services on them and they're just absolutely terrified. So Definitely, definitely finding someone who's trained and knowledgeable about exposure and response prevention is the best way to go.
0: We'll link all of those resources in the show notes as well, the blog post and show notes. And yeah, I can see how even with postpartum anxiety, and I can imagine that much more with OCD and like checking and stuff is, it's almost reinforced. It's almost like, oh, like, you know, this is what new motherhood is like, or, oh, you're just being really I don't know, focused and a good mom or however this starts to be labeled, right? Exactly. Oh, it's fine. Like I know so-and-so did that, or I used to do that. And it does often get sort of like reinforced or swept under the rug. And that's with a lot of postpartum things I find. And I can think about even experiences with my own doctor saying things. It's like, oh, you just, you need rest. You have three kids. I'm like, I'm a maternal mental health specialist. I'm telling you, I'm struggling with postpartum depression, you know? So I had to do that too. And
1: like on all the mom podcasts that I go on or any mom audience that I have, my best advice is that you may have to advocate like heck for yourself. And that's not a problem with you. It's not that you're not sick enough. It's not that you don't understand. It's a problem with the mental health system in general. Like you, like, and my ob guy knew what I was. She knew that I was an OCD specialist. She knew that I was working at a well-known facility in the area. Like she knew my background. And when I finally got the courage to go to her office and spill all of these horrific details, which already took so much effort. And I commend anyone who has to go through that experience. I honor that so much. She told me to just make sure that I was giving my son a pacifier. And I was like, what? First of all, right. second of all, I'm I want to like cry in my shower five times a week and roll out of a moving vehicle like, yeah, you may have to advocate for yourself. And that's okay. That's, that's not your fault. That's yeah, your fault. I totally agree.
0: Like I think about the moments where it took so much courage and working up to even go and have the conversation, then to feel questioned or not taken seriously for what you shared to your provider really is anxiety provoking, shame inducing, like just all like frustrating all of the feelings. Right, right.
1: All gaslighting. It's like, I remember very vividly feeling like, okay, this is all normal then why does it feel so awful? Like, I can't feel this way for the rest of my life. I don't, I don't feel this way. If this is how I have to feel for the rest of my life, then I don't want to be here.
0: Right. Like, I shouldn't have to slide my master's degree across the table and say I'm struggling with postpartum depression. Like, you know, it should be met with, you know, more, I don't even want to say compassion. I guess just training. Like, we're lacking training in like, you know, primary care. Absolutely Terrible. Yeah. So if you guys are listening, moms, if you've had similar experiences, or if you feel like at your postpartum visits or follow-ups or even pediatrician appointments with your kids, and you feel that your needs have been pushed to the side or haven't been taken seriously to advocate for yourself and know that you're, you know, worth advocating for. And it's important for you to do that because only you know how you're feeling. Only you know that undercurrent of Torment that you might be feeling. And while it might appear okay to everybody on the outside, you deserve to enjoy motherhood differently than that. And if it's hard for you, write it down in a letter, present the letter to them, take a safe person to the appointment or do it virtually so you can have your safe person there in COVID. Right now in Toronto, we can't have anybody in our appointments, which is a whole other challenge. But Do what you, you know, what you can to advocate for yourself in those situations. As somebody who also went to my doctor for medications in the postpartum period, that I knew all the things I needed to be doing. As a therapist, I was doing all the things and I was still trying to keep my head above water and then went on a medication. And like, it was as if all of the, I explained it as like ankle weights and wrist weights and all of the just sloth-like feeling that was holding me back just kind of like evaporated. And then I could actually like get up and do the things I knew to do. And I think that that is the piece where like if you're having trouble getting started or if you're feeling such distress or you know the skills and you're having a really hard time implementing them and and you're really trying. I see lots of clients who are really trying hard, right? And you're still kind of not coming up short, but just like really still feeling like you're struggling or feeling like you're you're having to work so hard every moment of the day to keep your, your head above water, then medications might be a really effective and helpful tool for you. Jenna, thank you so much. This is such an insightful and helpful conversation. A really underserved postpartum, you know, community that struggles with this. Where can people find you online? Where do you hang out? Yeah, so I hang out mostly on
1: Instagram. So way to go doing the Facebook thing. I just can't get it together on Facebook. So yeah, I'm over at jenna.overba on Instagram. I also have a podcast moms, I think will especially like it. So it's called all the hard things. And I actually have a a mom series called anonymous. So if any of this content kind of resonates with you, I've invited tons of moms from the community, you know, my own listeners, people who I know to kind of come on anonymously and share their experiences. And I think that's really helpful because it's one thing to hear it from me, from a professional. I don't have that much lived experience with it. And you didn't get to hear a lot of it here today. But there are specific episodes about harm intrusive thoughts, about OCD, about so many other things. And I think we could all agree that once we're anonymous, we let everything else come out a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And so I think if anyone out there is struggling and just wants to know that they're not alone and wants more information, checking out that podcast. With some of those episodes, it will be super helpful. And come and find me at NoCD. Like I said, we are a mobile therapy platform offering really highly trained, qualified ERP therapy, and it is the gold standard treatment for OCD. So lots and lots of help available. And we do free support groups for everyone, but they would be really great for moms too. Obviously, the pandemic makes things so isolating in and of itself. OCD is already quite isolating. Parenting is already so isolating. Right. Um, so if they're free, there's no gimmicks. They're all led by an OCD trained therapist. So if you feel like you have OCD or you're struggling with intrusive thoughts, we have tons of moms who are there. They have built community with each other. We offer, I think every day, if not numerous times a day, different groups, they're all via Zoom. So just download the NoCD app. It's free on the marketplace. And the link is there, introducing peer support groups. So they're all peer-based, but they're all led by therapists and they're all very, very helpful. So yeah, lots of great resources out there for moms. Um, Yeah. And I hope this was
0: helpful. Yeah. We'll make sure to link all of that in the show notes. You can click through in the podcast description and I'll make sure to keep it on, you know, tap too, for those who I come across who are asking for those types of resources. So thank you again, Jenna, for taking the time today. Thank you so much. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources and things that were discussed in today's show, you can find them in the show notes, which is linked in the episode description, or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast and find all of the show notes there if you're looking for support and connection with other moms, you can head over to facebook.com slash groups slash happy as a mother and join our Facebook community. This community is filled with women just like you and I who want to support and uplift one another through our postpartum journey. And until next episode, mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing a great job.